The swamp without a still is just a tent. A martini without olives doesn't quite make it. And Mash Minute is intended for mature audiences. Put on your headphones. Listen for the tone of your favorite podcast, Mash Minute. Well, it's a minute-by-minute detailed analysis. Of the movie without which the series wouldn't exist Megan and Tierney And guest will make three Goddamn Army MASH Minute Welcome back to MASH Minute We're the podcast that's analyzing the Robert Altman film MASH Talking a lot about the show But analyzing the film one minute (laughs) at a time Today we're going to talk about Minute two. Oh! Just kidding. I'm Tierney Steele. And I'm Megan Coleman. <laughs> I'm still here. I'm Father David Maury, a Roman Catholic priest of the Diocese of Joliet and chaplain not to the MASH unit, but to the MXM unit. Welcome back, Father. You know, you have been such a wonderful guest. You've taught us so much. And I'm feeling Shucks. really guilty about kidnapping you. <laughs> so we're going to set you free. Whoa, really? Gosh, you don't have to do that for me. I was actually starting to enjoy the company of the rats down here. But if, if you want to <laughs> let me go, I mean, I'm not going to say no. Well, you know what? It's getting close to the weekend, and I know you got a lot to do. So I appreciate that. Very thoughtful go, of you. Do you want to talk about Minute 21, which begins with Dish explaining what <laughs> wedding vows are, <laughs> explaining her vow to be faithful to her husband while making out with Hawkeye. <laughs> And it ends with Father Mulcahy awkwardly throwing Dish's sweater into the empty officers club. And you don't quite get it, but I'll tell you in the next few seconds, as he walks away, he is quickly licking the finger and paging through his uh, his his Bible or his prayer book there. Yeah, I can so, stick around and talk about that. Sure. Thank you. Sure. I, I you know... I can't have you leave on this awkward pool table moment. I got to at least involve the priest again. Uh, Because for for all her protestations, Dish Dish seems to be enjoying this quite a bit and seems very disappointed when they are interrupted by Hojon. It does seem that way. As much as I would not want to condone this behavior, especially while talking to a priest... Hawkeye's disoriented face when he's stuck in the sweater. Hojan? It, it makes me laugh every time. Well, Donald Sutherland is a good actor. He is. He, he knows he how to use... He's a rumpled, confused man. <laughs> when, uh, uh, well, first, I, I do love the, the fact that they're having this ongoing discussion while they are mashing their faces together <laughs> in such a way that would make such a conversation totally impossible. It's movie magic, baby. Movie <laughs> magic. <laughs> I also love the fact that he somehow gets his glasses into his mouth and still gives Dish a goodbye kiss. That takes talent. It does. <laughs> yeah. So Hojan tells him he has to get back to the swamp because the chest cutter is here. That was fast. That yeah. was quick. So th- this is what makes me think. This is not right after. Not only has the deluge ended, but we've had a little bit of recovery time. True um, that. But but not long. I mean, it, it's no. pretty quick. And clearly it is a surprise because Hawkeye was not expecting this. Yeah, so um, what do we think? Uh, it, it can't be, you know, it can't be as quick as a couple of days. It has to be at least a week. 
Because they have to put the request in. They have to find the chest cutter yeah. who would be available to transfer. they got to get him out to that unit, and who knows where he's coming from. Yeah, I want to say a week. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think if Blake started the process of trying and then was kind of keeping on, you know, Volmer, did you process that yet during the surgeries? And then that lasted a couple days, a few days. Yeah, uh, let's let's say a week. Okay. That didn't take long. That still okay, seems fast by RV standards, but maybe. Oh, sorry. I was thinking of the fact that he's already got a girlfriend. That's. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just I wanted to point out that Dish is into it because, unfortunately, in this movie we have to take our feminism where we can of <laughs> that's true <laughs> the little the little the little bits of <laughs> literally saying why she should not be doing what she's doing <sighs> well i think uh, we're all words very... mean things so mad <laughs> it's just it's just total i'm sorry i'm getting on a soapbox i can't help no, it just I, total... I, I, that's why i put that soapbox down there in the basement oh for you. thank you i appreciate that let me just kind of hobble up here i'm still tied to the chair this is awkward okay now i'm up here this is just moral relativism this is just what it is it's what hawkeye is advocating here because you know she says well, i made a vow to myself that i'd be faithful to my husband that's a good thing it's a good vow to make because she knows she's going into a situation where she might be tempted so she's making a promise to herself to strengthen her resolve but then hawkeye undermines that when he says things like well those are vows you make when you're with someone and it it (laughs) makes everything conditional upon the the presence of that person and whether they're going to know or not and that the physical need is more important than the promise of fidelity and commitment that is made because it's it's not just about the physical intimacy it's about the relational promise that's there that you know in these marriage vows, however they happen in church or whatever, still they made a promise to each other that they were going to be true to each other in good times and in bad, through thick and through thin. And, you know, this is the bad time where the, these spouses are separated from each other in times of, of war, where they're doing something grand and noble, but it demands a sacrifice in the marriage. And to have that undercut in this moment is something that really grinds my gears. <laughs> But like I said, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that things like this don't happen. I, the Catholic Church has the sacrament of confession for a reason. I still wish it didn't happen at all. In an ideal world, which doesn't exist. But yeah, it, it's... And it also... It, you you made an interesting point in that, in that I feel like I'm going to say this so many times. I am not saying it would be better or okay in any way. Dish is not a lady of the night who Hawkeye feels he has a physical need that is more important to him than his vow of fidelity to his wife. This is someone he works with, flirts with, and has a relationship with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's and that trans- is different. I, it's I'm not transactional. It, it is different. <laughs> it's not transactional here. You're absolutely right. Yeah. There, there, there is some kind of relationship here where there's, there's a respect for the person, but the fact of the matter remains they're both married. They've both made mm-hmm. promises to another person. Yeah. Who would well. like to talk about Radio Tokyo instead now? Radio Tokyo. Radio Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> Very frustratingly, a band name. So when you Google it, you have to. You really have to be uh, specific. Put some modifiers mm. on there. I actually I didn't pull up too many details, but I did write down a couple names. 
because when you Google Radio Tokyo and Korean War, about the um, propaganda, quote-unquote, artists of um, oh. World War II, the mm-hmm. Korean War, and the Vietnam War all kind of overlapped. And, like, there was a person who was known as Tokyo Rose, but that name would get used for other people. I'm just going to run down really quickly. We have, oh, shoot. I've never had to say the name of the North Korean city out loud. The Pyongyang, Pyongyang. Sally, Pyongyang Sally, Tokyo Rose, Seoul City Sioux, and Hanoi <laughs> Hannah are the ones that came up for around this era in this in this movie that is in 1970 about <laughs> the Vietnam War, but set in Korea, directed by a World War II vet. Based on a book by a Korean, like I, I kind of smushed the middle layers of the within layers together. within layers. layers. <laughs> but they play pop music, basically, you know. So it probably would have been a great thing. Like, yes, they're playing the radio. Thank God. <laughs> Get some nice, fun music going. <laughs> Yay! Uh, upbeat music for this. Awkward moment for Father Mulcahy, <laughs> who's, who's being so gentlemanly, t- doffs his cap to the lady yes. as he passes by the doofy cap with one of the flaps undone. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, now I think of The Hobbit whenever I see those hats. Oh, that's fair enough. It's just one of those things where no one has told him that it's flapping in the breeze or he's just so absent-minded. Uh, he doesn't notice it. I mean, it's... One of the, one of the problems as a priest, you know, as a as a celibate man, you don't have another person in your life who's able to tell you when you look stupid. My mother is always reminding me of that, especially when she's telling me I need to trim my nose hairs. <laughs> but oh. Look, you don't have a wife to tell you these things, so I, I need to be the one to tell. Like, okay, mom, thanks. <laughs> and so in in this Gosh, case, mom. I mean, Father Mulcahy's mother isn't around to tell me he looks like an idiot. Aww. They, I still uh, like him anyway. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I like him. I just wish he didn't look so doofy. The, literally everything in this character is basically designed for you to like him. That's true. Without feeling you threatened by him in any way, shape, or form. Precisely. No. And uh, this is the first of multiple times we're going to see Mulcahy try and fix a <laughs> sign and fail. <laughs> it's played so well. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he does such a good job in this little miming scene. Because you're right, it starts off with a very gentlemanly exchange, and then, <laughs> like, the... Because it is, it's mime. I We're Sean German. Like, that, <laughs> his little double take, and then his fluster with the tent flap, and... Well, I totally identify with Father Mulcahy's awkwardness. I would be just as awkward in this situation. <laughs> Because he knows what's happened. He understands the situation. Like, oh, they're coming out of the tent. She's dropping the sweater. Oh, oh, no. I understand. Oh, well, I can't. Well, now I can't embarrass her by calling her. Oh, what do I do? Oh, gosh. All right. Just toss it in there and just sweep it under the rug and just keep going. Keep walking like it never happened. Yep. You can actually see the moment of realization (laughs) and embarrassment. Oh, yeah. It's great. As it happens, they have. Got a couple of nosy Nancys. (laughs) Yeah, right. Get a scoop on the latest gossip. Like, hey, guess who we saw? <laughs> yeah, and it's only made out, I guess. The, the gossip is probably worse than what actually they happened. Have it. Yeah, really, right. Yeah, this, uh, it just, it ends this little scene. And I, it's weird to say I liked the contrast because it's two scenes where he is 
being gently mocked and then not or not so gently mocked and then gently mocked yes. by the contrast of Father Mulcahy in the operating room performing a sacrament or trying to perform a sacrament <laughs> with what his life must be like the rest of the time. Yeah, in non-crisis modes. He's mm. uh, walking around reading very piously. The book he has in his hand is very small, so I can't I'm having a hard time imagining what it could be because there are any number of books the priest might have it might be just a new testament just a little pocket copy of the new testament it oh, might be a, a it's too small to be his his breviary that'd be his his prayer book because as a priest he would have to pray a collection of psalms and scripture readings at various points during the day but that's also something he would have with him all the time and the fact he's got what looks like a cross or a rosary hanging with it. That was a pretty common practice as well. Mm, I'm talking out loud. I'm thinking about yeah, this. Well, I, priests I, don't need to like read the instructions for the rosary the way I do. I, assume. <laughs> <laughs> I have a. They they know. <laughs> I, I have a I have a priest friend who's very close with his grandmother, and when they talk on the phone, his grandmother asks him, "Oh, have you said the rosary today?" Well, yes, Grandma. Of course, I said the rosary. How many times? Well, just the once, Grandma. Oh, you're a priest. Shame on you. <laughs> I said it three times today. Like, okay, Grandma, well, that's good for you. You have the time. <laughs> There's always someone holier than you. Yeah, so the, certainly not instructions for the rosary. Uh, I'm going to land on, I'm going to just guess it's his breviary. It's his prayer book. So it would make sense why he'd have it with him all the time. He's, he's getting in his mm-hmm. prayers when he can. And I love that idea of him. Just like, all right, I've got, <laughs> I... I need to set aside this time, <laughs> these minutes. Oh, but I got to get over. All right. Well, I can I can do this while walking. That's oh, yeah. fine. <laughs> I, I've done that. Every so often, you just have an absolutely packed day, but you still got to check in with the boss upstairs. So you got to do that on the run. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, sometimes that's just what you have to do. You got to do what you got to do. I read a book on the memoirs of someone who became a nun and she started like in 65. So it was kind oh, of as all those changes were happening and what it was like. Um, oh. um, and she was at the school that's not Notre Dame, but it's at Notre Dame. <laughs> um, oh, um, oh, Holy Cross. Holy Cross college? is in Massachusetts. So, uh, oh, um, because there's, there's a women's college in Notre Dame. As yeah. Well. Yeah. It was it's the women's to... college. And what it was, was she was, you know, she, she was grew up Catholic in northern Indiana. Holla! Mm-hmm. Surprised we're not related. Got the call and decided to become a nun. And this was, like, going to be great because she was also going to get a college degree. And, like, how wonderful. And she talked about walking around on campus and whenever the bells rang, what prayer she had to say. And when I moved to Simmons and was right in the middle of deciding whether or not to become a Catholic, the Simmons residential campus is right next door to Emmanuel College. Mm. And so I would hear the bells ringing throughout the day. And it was just like that little like in the back of your mind, like, (laughs) yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do this. I'm not going to become a nun. Which, whenever things are going really terribly in my life, I worry that like I ignored the call. And that's why. (laughs) Um, But... But it was it was a very interesting um, reminder. I can picture the cover perfectly because I read it multiple times. <laughs> oh, now you're sounding like a library patron. I am, and I'm getting really annoyed because I keep th- see, finding the flying nun, nope, and then things about how yeah, women forced to become nuns, and I'm like, no, no, she t- 
Forever and ever, amen. Becoming a nun in the 60s by Carol Joukowsky. Four. And so she talks about how there were people when Vatican II happened who were just like, this is not for me. Mm. Um, and, and the struggles that the older nuns had. Yeah. With, with how do you run this convent while all this is happening. Yeah, because the, the unfortunate reality is that Vatican II uh, hit at a time precise. Well, let me back up. Vatican II was a move to open the church up to the modern world. It did so mm-hmm. during a decade when the modern world was really beginning to question itself. <laughs> so precisely when there was a great deal of societal instability building up and a, a great deal of revolutionary change that was happening, that's when the church said, oh, well, let's let's experiment with some things and see if we can do this better. Like, oh, well, things are kind of falling apart now. Uh-oh. And, yeah. and certainly for women who had been part of the system for years and years, for decades, to have that kind of change introduced all of a sudden, it, it was a, a radical and you know, sometimes painful transition for them. Yeah. And uh, it's the situation that a lot of older nuns find themselves in now, where they've dedicated their lives to the service of others, to feeding the poor, to teaching, to advocating for the rights of immigrants and, and doing all that good work and, and really living their lives as faithful members of the church. But at 75, 80, they are some of the youngest members of their religious order because mm-hmm. there there was not a continued influx of women into those orders after their time because there was this move in the Catholic Church to empower lay folks in the pews and to open up the new opportunities for the lady that weren't there before in the cultural understanding of the Catholic Church. And so you didn't have women entering religious orders for the same reasons as you did before, which meant that there were fewer of them. So I'd be fascinated to read this book you're talking about just to hear yeah. about the experiences from the yeah. inside. Oh, she, she talks at one point about how they it was their job to like go visit the older nuns that mm-hmm. were in, that are retired, that are mm-hmm. in, uh, not hospice, but the step before. And some of them were just like, yeah, sneak me in a bottle of booze. I don't care about any of this. There is, you know, just... <laughs> completely had turned the corner in their old age. She's just like, and and they're next to someone who is the most pious person you could imagine. And it it just was that kind of like, it's, it's all types. It's everyone. The church is a big place. We got room for everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Because my aunt, uh, because my great aunt was the parish nurse and she worked, I think how she got into that was she is a nurse and she was the nurse at a school at a Catholic school. And so she ended up becoming kind of the nurse for the nuns who ran it as well. And so the first time I ever saw a nun in a habit in real life, she, there were three of, three of them, two of them, running down a hallway towards me at top speed, waving a broom in the air, chasing a bat towards me. (laughs) Oh. Because we were visiting after hours. (laughs) It imprinted. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I'll I'll bet. (laughs) chasing a bat that had gotten out of the out of the building it had gotten into and then i remember being absolutely fascinated and obsessed with but like very back and again i i was raised episcopalian i had Mm -hmm. none of this everything um the door and behind the door lived the nuns you didn't know that didn't come and have cake and tea with you and it was just like and i i remember i would try to be like i'm touching 
<laughs> as, as only an eight-year-old can be amazed by sort of thing. Sure. Pushing the I'm envelope. Like, and, and, and of course, not knowing, I was like, so they never come out? Like, I did not get what cloisters were at all. <laughs> My mom used to work in the parish office. And at one point, she was working and she saw a whole bunch of kids from the grade school coming through they were getting a tour of the parish office and the rectory and just to kind of see oh this is you know the offices this is the other parts of the church you may not see and as they came to the rectory portion the the residence of the priests one of the little boys towards the front of the group turned around to everyone and said shh the priests <laughs> sleep during the day <laughs> Like they're vampires or something? I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah, that eight-year-old mentality. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh absolutely. Oh, goodness. But that's, I, I have a lot of very strong sadness about the fact that there really isn't, in our generation, like, it's... It's not a thing because I I knew these women. You know, some of them wore the house. Some of them didn't. There are women that yep. we were visiting that all of a sudden I'm realizing years later, like that was a nun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that was a nun's apartment I went to. She had great kids. Like, and, and it was always. <laughs> and I realized because my aunt knew these people, and um, the the one I'm thinking of in Stanford, it's because she was lonely. She was the only one. Yeah. Like there were yeah. there were other religious people, but she was literally the only nun. Yeah. <laughs> and so. You know, she probably just wanted the company for an afternoon. Sure. And so we, you always brought cake or cookies or something. And again, I'm a kid. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, old people are gonna talk and feed me cake. Sign me up. <laughs> and then I became a history major and continued that to this day. So, I, but but I it maybe was find really something that works because it was like, oh, that's so lonely, and it just. It, again, it, uh, I don't know. But again, I, I also feel like I can't speak to it too much because I did not walk the walk. I just talked the talk <laughs> of saying there should be more nuns, but not me. <laughs> well, there are, there are some, some growing communities of, of religious sisters in the United States. There's the Dominican sisters down in Nashville. There's another group of Dominicans up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They have a lot of young postulants and young women entering those orders. There's also a group here in Chicago, the Franciscans of the Eucharist. They have, uh, I want to say about 10 sisters now, and uh, they have one brother who's in that order, and they're all uh, they're all our age, you know, they're all in their, their 30s or so, and they're all embracing this aspect of the church's life, of you know, living in a way that Father Mulcahy is living. Father Mulcahy is a, is a Jesuit priest. He is also a part of a religious order, and the way religious orders operate, it's set up in— uh, it's set up as a, a continuation of a charism, so a particular ministry that the founder of the religious order— had in mind. So for the Jesuits, they were founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola, and his vision was have a, a dedicated group of priests who would teach the faith, who would evangelize, who would do the work necessary to spread the Catholic faith in the aftermath of the, the Reformation, when there was a lot of strife and confusion about the faith uh, following 
all the, the terrible conflicts and schisms that followed from those years. Likewise, the Franciscans following the charism of St. Francis, who was in love with Lady Poverty, to continue that Christ-like way of living without reliance on material possessions. So the order if it has a strong charism, it has a strong vision of, a, of what it's about, what the community is organized around as an expression of the Christian faith, then you're going to have some hope for vibrancy. That's always that, that was the point of the reforms that happened back in the 60s and 70s. Some of these things that the religious orders are doing get in the way of the charism. Are the habits, are the uniforms the sisters wear too constrictive? Is there a way to free that up? What about the, the way the rules of these orders are written? Are they too oppressive? To authoritarian, do they need to be rewritten and reformed? And, you know, in some cases that process went very well. In other cases, it led to the 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 decision of a lot of women just to leave religious life altogether. And that it's a careful balancing act because you want to have something in the church where you have a community organized around that particular aspect of the Christian faith. But at the same time, there has to be something holding that together. There has to be some agreed-upon way of life. It has to look like something. And striking that balance is is tough. And you know, for priests like Father Mulcahy, who's part of a religious order, the Jesuits themselves knew that they'd be sending these priests off into areas where they'd be all by themselves. So they don't have an expectation of praying in community, because so often the Jesuit priest would be on his own in mission territory. But he still remains connected with his brother priests, that they still know they have the spiritual support of the other members of the community, which I think is one of the reasons why Father Mulcahy can be as uh, doofy as he is. He, he, is not, <laughs> he is not as affected by the horrors of war around him, not because he's naive, but because he has a better support network than anyone else in the camp. He has the faith and he yeah. has that religious order that he's a part of that grounds him, that gives him purpose and gives him a greater meaning in life. And uh, he's able to give witness to that in his own quiet kind of bumbling way. Oh, God, I feel like we could do another whole hour on the healthiness of how Father Mulcahy turns to his faith versus how Burns turns to his faith. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's because that's the thing of... Mulcahy is inward, Burns is outward. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, Burns wields his faith like a cudgel, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's all about the external performance. Mulcahy has interiorized his faith, and he's confident in his identity, and that's the key. He yeah. knows who he is, and when you know who you are, you can go anywhere. And Father Mulcahy, yes, he's kind of hopeless and bumbling and, and doofy and you know, not exactly carrying himself with the kind of gravitas that I personally would want to see a priest carrying, but I, I have a bias in that regard, I admit. Uh, I have a vested interest in that, but still... But you're right, he knows exactly who he is. He knows who he is, and I think he has uh, the best one-liner in the movie. Um, how in the world did that man ever yeah. rise to the rank of captain? He was drafted. It's the best. I think it's the it's best. It's so well delivered. It's so well delivered, yeah. and it comes from the last person you'd expect because he's ha he's had it up to here with this new nurse. Like, oh come on, lady, <laughs> cut him some slack. <laughs> Don't you realize how things work around here? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So he's yeah. he's interiorized his faith, and he knows who he is, and so he doesn't have to mm -hmm. give that kind of extreme vocal expression to his faith like Burns does because he's he's matured to a point where he doesn't need to express his faith in that way. 
I'm sure he prays just as much as Burns does, but uh, he does so in a spiritually mature way where he knows what it's for. It's for his own relationship with God, and it's for his relationship with the camp to do what he needs to do as a chaplain. I mean, it's one of the things he tries to do when uh, Hawkeye first shows up. Well, I'm, o- I'm over in the chaplain's tent, so if you, if you, if you need anything, yeah. and he's always trying to offer his help and offer his services. And he can do that and be easily embarrassed and flustered. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's like uh, what Jesus said to his disciples, you must be innocent as lambs, but as cunning as serpents. Innocent as doves. Innocent as doves, but as cunning as serpents. So there's an innocence to Father Mulcahy. Absolutely, there's a total innocence to him. But there's also an awareness of the human condition. We see it in this minute where he's he doesn't want to embarrass Dish and he doesn't want to make a scene. And so he he rightly recognizes that it's not really his place to start asking nosy questions. Like, what were you doing in there? Why did you drop your sweater? Because what what good's that going to do anyone? And Mm -hmm. so he shoves it into the camp and and tries just to come up the tent and walks away. Can't help but like the guy. Oh, well, Father David Mowry, you can put aside the soapbox and your tent and the crackers we've been throwing down to you. We are going to let you walk away. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate the chance to talk Thank about uh, the anointing of the sick and uh, the reformation of religious orders after the Second Vatican Council and military chaplaincy and all these great <laughs> things. And appreciate having the opportunity to, to watch MASH as just as a cultural artifact. It was very educational. I was going to say, it, it is definitely <laughs> a movie of its time. Mm-hmm. Yes. It says a lot about where the country was mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I, I started to say, like, Oh, but the contrast, because after all, this is a post-Vatican II priest playing someone in the 50s. And I'm like, yeah, this script was written by guys who grew up under that. It was acted yeah. by guys who grew up under that. Oh, yeah. They just played it as. Mm-hmm. 19, like, that was that was not the problem. That was not the, where the conflict came in. Nah. Yeah. So that, uh, yeah, that's always a... That's one of my aunt's favorite thing when she walks into church. Oh, so this is a post-Vatican II church, she says, looking around. I know exactly what she means, too. Yep. (laughs) So that's always a fun time. But, yeah, I I guess I was going to say, like, oh, we'll send people to see you. But, I mean, like, I know two people in Chicago, and I don't even think one of them's Catholic. So... Well, if you want to chat with me online, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Father Mowry. That's F-R-M-O-W-R-Y. And I've been on a couple other uh, Movies by Minutes shows. You can find links to all of those on my website, fatherdavidmowry.com. Just a couple episodes that uh, your listeners might find interesting. I uh, did an episode of Scrooged by the Ghost looking at the Bill Murray movie and uh, talking about the, the priest character that shows up in that uh, section of the film, uh, as well as talking with the Star Wars Minute guys. Uh, I was just on an episode of their show and uh, got to talk about the surprising religiosity of one of the space pirates in the scene I was on for. <laughs> Love it. You can find everything for the Movies by Minutes podcast at moviesbyminutes.com. So if you are just like, this format is insane, I must find more. Because that's kind of what happened to me. Um, <laughs> You'll find a lot more. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, you can find us specifically 
on mashminute.com. We have a Facebook group for our listeners to discuss things. It's called the Mash Minute Post App Listeners Ward. Um, it's a closed group, but it just, you know, let us know you're a real person. We'll let you in. And you could always just come back for the next episode. See what happens when Hawkeye reaches the tent and meets this mysterious new chest cutter. <laughs> and Megan's excited. <laughs> we get to be one of my favorite characters. <laughs>